Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Lenten Faith on the Lunatic Fringe. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, March the 1st, 2015, the second Sunday in Lent. For Lent this year, I joined a group at my church that's reading the book, City of God, Faith in the Streets, by Sarah Miles. This was an easy choice for me. I enjoyed her first two memoirs so much that two years ago I drove up to San Francisco to have lunch with her. Miles' newest book describes her transformation from what she calls a respectable churchgoer to a lunatic evangelist. When she joined a group that took, ash, the, took the Ash Wednesday imposition of ashes out of the church and into the streets of San Francisco, she says that she wanted to get beyond the tastefully enclosed museum of religious life. So they donned their black cassocks and hit the streets of this most secular of cities. They knelt in McDonald's at bus stops and on the sidewalks to pray and impose ashes. From dust you came, and to dust you will return. Yes, people gawked. And yes, she says she felt self-conscious, fraudulent, awkward, and exposed. But guess what? People loved it. Why were people so eager for ashes and so effusive with gratitude? Ash Wednesday, writes Miles, is the most honest of days when the church reminds you of, no, of what no one else in society will say, that from dust you came and to dust you will return. We admit that we've made a mess. In other words, the truth is a blessing. Lent challenges our perfunctory faith that merely goes through the motions of church play-acting, if you will. Lent isn't just a minor tune-up or slight readjustment of life. It doesn't just tinker around the edges or offer a cosmetic makeover. Rather, Lent calls us to resurrection from the dead through repentance, to the lunatic faith of what Miles calls a Jesus freak. If there is a God, wrote Simone Weil, a secular Jew who converted to Christianity, it is not an insignificant fact, but something that requires a radical rethinking of every little thing. Your knowledge of God can't be considered as one fact among many. You have to bring all the other facts into line with the fact of God. And so Jesus calls us in this week's gospel. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will save it. But alas, it's so easy to settle for far less, to lapse into the easy believism of a respectable churchgoer. In the words of Paul, to have a form of godliness, but deny its power.
A friend of mine has a term for such tepid faith in a tame deity. He calls it functional deism. The 18th century deists, like Thomas Jefferson, believed in a supreme being who created the world, ordered it with predictable laws of nature and morality, but then abandoned it like an absentee landlord. Deists rejected the faintest whiff of a miracle and judged everything at the bar of reason alone. The deist, of God, the deist God is remote, safe, and silent. He won't bother you. He won't intervene in human history or answer your prayers. And he sure won't speak to you or do the impossible. I'd laugh if someone called me a deist, but I can sure live, think, and act like one. Thank God for the Lenten call to a lunatic faith. It would be hard to imagine a God more different from the deist God than the Hebrew God. The psalm for this week says that the God who flung the 100 billion galaxies into space each one with 100 billion stars, is like an attentive mother or a tender father. He has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Whereas the psalmist worships God intimate, the Genesis story this week describes God infinite. God rebuked both Abraham and Sarah for their timid faith in a tiny God. When God promised Abraham that, quote, about this time next year, Sarah, your wife, will bear a son, he scoffed. The story says, he fell down, laughed, and said to himself, will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And then, when Sarah overheard God's stupendous promise, she responded in an identical manner. We read, So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? The ecstasy of erotic pleasure, the joy of a newborn baby. Sarah laughed in disbelief. But God rebuked her for her doubt at which point she lied and denied. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh, but he said, yes, you did laugh. The aged couple doubted and denied. They laughed and they lied because of the absurd disproportion between the divine promise and the human possibility. From a human perspective, their disbelief was understandable. People don't procreate in old age. But their unbelief also evoked a rhetorical rebuke in the punchline of the narrative. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? God didn't shame the couple in a punitive manner. Quite the contrary, we read that, quote, the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, and did for Sarah what he had promised.
In a delightful double entendre, they name their son Isaac, which in Hebrew means he laughs. Their son of laughter would always remind them of their disbelief, but he would also testify to how God fulfilled his promise despite improbable circumstances. At the beginning of the story, Sarah laughed in disbelief, but at the end, she laughed with joy. God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. God makes something out of nothing. He creates ex nihilo. In the words of Paul's epistle this week in Romans chapter 4, he gives life to the dead and calls into being that which was that which does not exist. In other words, he's a God worthy of our lunatic faith in this Lenten season. For books this week, I review a book of poetry by Christian Wyman. The title is called Once in the West. New York, Farrar, Strauss, and Giraud, 2014. It's 105 pages long. Christian Wyman's new book of poetry, his fourth, follows his memoir, which was called My Bright Abyss, Meditations of a Modern Believer. In that previous book, which he called a mosaic of prose fragments, he explored his experience of falling in love in the shadows of death while trying to discover what assenting to his long, latent faith means. What I crave, he wrote in that earlier book, is some speech that is true to the transcendent nature of grace, yet equal to the hard reality in which daily faith operates. He says he sought both an active devotion and honest modern consciousness. He wanted to see the sanity and vitality of this strange ancient thing called Christian faith. Wyman, born in 1966, is an American poet, the author of seven books, and from 2003 to 2013 was the editor of the journal Poetry the oldest poetry magazine in the United States. On his 39th birthday, he was diagnosed with a rare form of cancer. His many treatments included a bone marrow transplant. At about the same time, Wyman fell madly in love and married his wife, Danielle. Today they have two children, Percolating underneath all of this was a long latent faith from his childhood days in West Texas. Today, Wyman teaches at the Yale Divinity School in Yale Institute of Sacred Music. The 51 poems in this book continue Wyman's search for a God who is both too near and too far. Many of them reflect on his Texas childhood and the people who knew me when. Others describe his conversion and his cancer, 
All of them are characterized by brutal emotional honesty. On the one hand, we experience terrifying pain, suffering, loneliness, and the primal silence. The pious platitudes of a Sunday school faith are no help here, and Wyman can be downright acerbic when he describes our casual presumptions about the divine. I mean to be mean, he writes. But this isn't the only thing we experience. We know moments of meaning, a trace of peace, love in forsaken places like a nursing home, the rock shriek of joy, and even, he writes, an attack of happiness. Is nothing pure, he wonders? No, it's not. There are both eros and thanatos, meaning and meanness, love and hate, destruction and creation. Winter cold might have a blind imperative to destroy, but when he looks more closely, he sees its bare abundance and realizes that one might more would have been too much. Such is the surplus of meaning in the apparent meaninglessness. Here, for example, is Memory's Mercies, which captures this paradox. Memory's Mercies mostly aren't. But there were, I swear, days veined with grace, like a lucky rock ripping electrically over whatever water there was. Ten skips, twenty in the telling. All the day's aches eclipsed, and a late sun belling even sleeping Leroy back into his body to smile at some spirit-lit tank rock skimming the reel, so belongingly no longing clung to it when it plunged bright as a firefly into nowhere. I swear. Wyman's poetry is verse that bears witness to the ring of truth and of faith in the face of death. Christian Wyman, book of poems, it's called Once in the West. For films this week, we go to the country of Nepal in a film called Mana Kamana. Mana Kamana, which means desire of the heart, is a Hindu goddess to whom an ancient temple is dedicated high atop a mountain in Nepal. In this very unusual experimental documentary, we watch pilgrims as a cable car ferries them to the sacred site at the top of the mountain. Our field of vision is limited to the rectangular window of the cable car. Below is the lush forest, isolated villages, a tiny ribbon of road, and a trail that was used in the old days for the three-day walk to the shrine. There's no narration or script, just the rumble of the cable car and the silence or occasional chit-chat of the passengers. My ears are popping. The hills, they look so gigantic. The film has 11 vignettes as different passengers take the 10-minute ride up the mountain, 
including one segment of five goats tied together. I watched this film because a major critic listed it as one of the best films of 2014. I'm not so sure about that, but it's an ethnographer's dream and was made by Stephanie Spray of Harvard University's Sensory Ethnography Lab. In Nepal, in Nepali with English subtitles. I watched this film on Netflix streaming. Once again, in the country of Nepal, Mana Kamana from the year 2014. <clears throat> and for poetry this week, we posted a marvelous poem, Prayer, by C.S. Lewis. It's called Footnote to All Prayers. He whom I bow to only knows to whom I bow. When I attempt the ineffable name, murmuring thou, in dream of Phidian fancies, in embrace in heart, symbols I know which cannot be the thing thou art. Thus always, taken at their word, all prayers blaspheme, worshiping with frail images a folklore dream. And all men in their praying, self-deceived, address the coinage of their own unquiet thoughts, unless thou in magnetic mercy to thyself divert our arrows, aimed unskillfully beyond desert. And all men are idolaters, crying unheard to a deaf idol, if thou take them at their word. Take not, O Lord, our literal sense, Lord, in thy great unbroken speech, our limping metaphor translate. Footnote to All Prayers by C.S. Lewis. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, March the 1st, 2015. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.